Hello everyone, here is Daniel Budai with another episode of our podcast, The Eco Show, and today I'm here with Lawrence in Gracia. Let me introduce uh, Lawrence because he has great experience, not just in e-commerce, but in the business world. So his book is The Billion Dollar Brand Club, How Dollar Shape Club, Warby Parker and other disruptors are remaking what we buy. And he worked as uh, the special committee member of uh, Dow Jones and uh, former managing editor at Los Angeles Times. And he also worked at uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal. So he has decades of experience in this field and I'm really happy to have him here. Hey, Lawrence, how are hey, you? Hey, good morning. Good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are. Yeah, so here it's uh, good evening. It's uh, 4 p.m., but you are you are close to New York, right? I'm actually in uh, Seattle. Okay, oh, Seattle, yeah. So it's very early there. Very yeah. early in the morning here. Yeah. If I yawn, you'll understand why. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a big time difference, but that's fine. Thanks for uh, waking up so early. So... I always ask our guests about their personal story. You have such a great experience in journalism. Um, and I'm just wondering why, how, how this idea to write a book about e-commerce, it came up for you. Well, you know, it's, it's a very good question, Dan. You know, I'm, I'm a business journalist and, uh, you know, kind of had covered a, a wide variety of things, you know, everything from uh, the financial crisis in 2008 to, uh, you know, kind of the rise of some of the big technology companies, uh, you know, kind of the growth in international trade. But I've always was interested in entrepreneurs and kind of what makes them tick, uh, you know, kind of what, what separates a successful uh, idea and a successful entrepreneur uh, from, you know, one who is, is not. And so when I retired from daily journalism, I wanted to write something about entrepreneurs. And it so happened um, uh, that uh, my interest in e-commerce and direct-to-consumer brands actually goes back to uh, more than a decade to around 2011 or so. And a friend of my daughter uh, had an idea to start a company that he would eventually come to call Dollar Shave Club. But this was even before he had the name of the company. And his idea was to sell razors online uh, for uh, a, a discounted price, for a lower price than you could get in the store. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as I mentioned, you know, I've been a long time uh, business journalist. And at one point, I covered uh, Gillette Company. Now, Gillette is one of the most powerful brands in the world, not just the U.S., but in the world. It has great products. It has great advertising. And it's maintained a market share uh, long of about 70 percent, some markets even more than 70 percent for decades, not just for a short period of time. So I didn't tell my daughter's friend, whose name was Michael Dubin, uh, but I thought to myself, this is the dumbest idea that I have ever heard. Uh, you're going to compete with Gillette by selling razors and blades online? Really? Well, fast forward to 2016. I was driving to work uh, at 7 a.m. listening to the news on the radio, and I heard a story 
uh, about Unilever buying Dollar Shave Club for $1 billion. And after kind of grabbing the steering wheel to make sure I didn't swerve out of the lane and hit the car next to me, um, I said to myself out loud, uh, he didn't. He did it. Michael fucking did it. And then I had two thoughts. You know, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, uh, boy, was I wrong. Not just me, but a lot of supposedly smart people, uh, including venture capitalists who had turned him down because it took him a long time before he was able to get financing. And some of its established competitors, especially G Gillette, who dismissed him and said, this, you know, kind of, this isn't going to work. We don't have to worry about this guy. And the second thing I wondered was, how did this happen? What were the elements that kind of came together to make possible what I and many other people thought was impossible? You know, nobody thought the razor business could be disrupted, but it was. Over four to five years, Gillette's market share fell to the low 50% range. I mean, you think about that. For many years, it had been 70%. It lost 15 18%, mostly to uh, Dollar Shave Club, but other competitors, including a company called Harry's, came along. And as I started, you know, doing a little bit of research, I quickly realized that Dollar Shave Club, while an amazing story itself, was, was really just part of a bigger story, a story about a revolution that changed the way that people uh, were buying everyday products, you know, kind of not just razors, but eyeglasses, mattresses, contact lenses, uh, bras, sneakers, luggage, cosmetics, uh, watches, shampoo, just about anything that you could name, dog food. Uh, uh, vitamins, uh, hearing aids, you know, kind of you name it. And you, there was a startup selling it online. Uh, and so the same thing was just as intriguing to me is that that were the faces behind these products, you know, kind of the dreamers, the risk takers like Michael Dubin, uh, the founder of Dollar Shave Club. And, you know, most of them were in their 20s and 30s. And they just had the audacity to, to do, you know, kind of to take on these corporate giants that many thought were unassailable. Uh, so that was that was it. And, you know, kind of once I kind of started talking to these people, I knew it was a good idea. It was, you know, kind of they're, they're, they were just a lot of fascinating people. Yeah, I think it's a very inspiring story. And uh, many entrepreneurs, they want to follow this example. So I'm just curious, what was the secret? What was the secret? Is there a secret of Dollar Shave Club, let's say? Is it only e-commerce? So so I think that there were, were several things that factors that came together. And also, we have to look at this as constantly evolving uh, because technology is constantly evolving. So, you know, kind of things that came together is, you know, kind of because you could have come up with a, an idea to sell off-brand razor braids even before this. But why, why at this point in time? Well, first of all, um, you had the possibility of social media marketing, marketing online. That wasn't before. If you go back, you know, kind of 15, 20 years, the only way to introduce a major brand, you know, you could always do a niche brand, but the only way to introduce a major brand that you hope to sell nationally was to have some kind of big advertising campaign that would be on television, radio, maybe newspapers. That would cost a huge amount of money that most entrepreneurs simply don't have. But social media marketing, particularly Facebook, but also um, uh, uh, search engine, you know, kind of uh, Google uh, advertising. You could do this with a very small budget back then. 
Now that has changed. That's an important thing that people need to keep in mind. Back then, you could do it for a very small amount of money. And by the way, you could target your uh, uh, audience much more specifically than you could on TV uh, and radio. You know, you could go after a demographic that would be, you know, and, and Facebook, Facebook could, could figure that out because they had the algorithm, they were following everybody. You could go after a demographic that would be, you know, 20 to 30-year-old men who, you know, kind of maybe uh, uh, were tired of spending a lot of money uh, on razor blades and, you know, kind of wanted a little bit more convenience. And, and the, the second thing was uh, the logistics revolution. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. For the first time, because of the way warehouses were changing, you could ship products, consumer goods, to people at their homes for a relatively low amount. In the past, everything had been kind of gone to stores and you had to go to stores. But now you didn't have to do that. And that's because it was possible because the way that uh, Amazon was revolutionizing it, but everybody else was getting us. I'm going to be able to ship you, you know, kind of. In the past, you know, there was always mail order. I mean, you had mail order catalogs. You, in the, you know, kind of go back 30, 40 years, if you ordered something mail order, you were going to wait a week or two, three weeks. Who knows how it was going to arrive? But now you were having products that could arrive within a couple of days. And the second thing was, I think there's a lot of consolidation, a lot of industries that reduce competition. So the competition among big companies tend to be in a very narrow thing. And they aren't that creative. They aren't thinking outside the box. And so you had all these young entrepreneurs who were looking for opportunities. And, you know, kind of every successful company starts with a good idea. I don't know kind of how important that is. It's like every really good book starts with a good idea. You know, if you can write, you can be a great writer, but if you have a bad idea, the book isn't going to be very good. It's not going to sell very well. Same thing as far as a uh, you know, new product is concerned, a new consumer product. But all these entrepreneurs started with the ideas, I want to solve a problem. And what is it? But that's really important. What is the problem I want to solve? Well, in the case of Dollar Shave Club, you know what? These... Uh, uh, you know, Gillette charges $5 for a cartridge. And if I go to a store, it's very inconvenient because it costs so much. In many cases, they're locked behind, you know, kind of glass. And so I have to get the uh, 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 clerk to open it up for me. And oh, by the way, sometimes I forget to do that and I'm shaving with a, a uh, uh, dull blade and cutting myself. The idea was I'm going to sell them for less. I'm going to sell it by a subscription. It's going to go straight to you. So there's going to take on the convenience and you're never going to run out because it's going to automatically come to you. You know, kind of what of a simple idea. Now, some people said, oh, well, that's not as good as a Gillette razor. Well, you know what? Maybe it's not. But it was quite a good blade. It was probably, you know, as far as the shave is 80 to 90 percent is good at 50 percent the price. That's a value proposition. So if you look at all these companies, Warby Parker, again, they were selling on price, but they were also selling on convenience, eyeglasses. This is a pair of Warby Parker eyeglass frames. Uh, Third Love Bra Company, you know, knew that a lot of women didn't like the bras that they were buying. It didn't fit that well. So came up with an algorithm and a questionnaire uh, and half sizes so that they fit better. And all of a sudden, you know, kind of people come when you have a good idea. But it has to start with a, a, a good idea. There's execution. They were there at the right time in the right place early on when social media marketing was not so expensive, uh, and all these things came together. These companies really took off.
Yeah, I think that's very interesting. You shared how times, you know, times have changed. The marketing uh, opportunities, how you can market yourself, also what the and the, the fulfillment, how it changed, and how people have changed, and especially millennials, they have very different needs than their grandparents, let's say. So, yeah, and all of these big brands, they couldn't really adopt to these changes, such as Gillette and. Now we have these new startups coming up. I'm really curious uh, what differences you can see between successful startups like Dollar Shave Club and not successful ones, besides the good idea. Yeah, you know, it, it, it depends on, on the category. I was talking to another uh, entrepreneur recently. Uh, and it, again, times change. One of the things that is helpful, especially as marketing costs are going up, is is if you have a product that people are going to buy regularly because the cost of customer acquisition is something that you need to be able to pay for, right? Um, so, you know, five, 10 years ago, the cost of customer acquisition was much lower for on social media and Facebook, but because it was so successful, everybody started doing it, you know, there's supply and demand, Facebook char started charging you more. Uh, but if you had recurring revenue so that the, the lifetime value of the customer was higher, you, you could succeed. If you had, uh, so for some of these companies, it was a matter of uh, uh, trying to figure out how do I get lifetime revenue? So there were several new uh, companies selling uh, luggage online. And one company just focused on selling luggage and, you know, kind of suitcases. And they were very good suitcases. But another company said, okay, you know what, but how many times is, are you going to buy a suitcase? If it's a good suitcase, you're going to buy one every three or four or five years. And, you know, maybe we can try to make it a little bit of a fashion accessory and give you different colors and everything. But the reality is there are going to be a limited number of suitcases you're going to buy. So what we need to do is figure out how to sell some kind of accessories. So, you know, kind of when we get your business, you know who we are, you like the product, you come back to us. So they would sell a toiletries kit for $20 or $30 in addition to the $250 suitcase. Or so, so, and then they branched out into, or maybe you, you know, kind of need, you know, kind of uh, something, you know, kind of to uh, a, a bag for your, your suits. Okay. So this was a, a smart thing. And I think it differentiated them from their competitors because they, you know, kind of, they had a somewhat recurring, well, it's something you're going to order monthly, but somewhat recurring revenue model. So yeah. I think an entrepreneur, looks at what, he's, what he or she is doing, they have to figure out, okay, how am I going to have a sustainable business, not a one-time business? And the other thing is, um, uh, you know, kind of, you have to think about what is, what am I offering that is distinctive? It's a very crowded marketplace and just about all consumer product companies. And that distinctiveness can be a variety of things. It doesn't have to be one thing, and it's not the same thing for every company. I mean, for Dollar Shave Club and Hubble contact lenses, you know, kind of their main pitch was price. We're going to give you a high quality product at a much lower price. Okay. And then there was the recurring and the convenience and everything. But for, for them, it was, was price. Warby Parker also was price, but also convenience and style. You know, we're going to give you some, you know, kind of very nicely styled frames. Well, by the way, they're genius ideas. We're you're not going to have to, how, how do we overcome the fact that, you know, kind of for most people, they're not going to buy a 
pair of glasses unless they put them on their face and see what it looks like. So they would send five frames to you at home. So you could try them on, pick the one that you could like, you liked, and then we could take care of it. And the other thing was for, for Warby Parker, as much as that it was customer service, okay? If you didn't, I, I had a great experience early on with, with Warby Parker. This was actually before I wrote the book and before I decided to write the book. I needed a new pair of glasses and I had a new prescription. And uh, I got it from Warby Parker. And I, I, I didn't like the prescription. I didn't like the way they it, it, it worked for me. Now, I think I actually, I had a new my doctor, I think that the uh, prescription was not good. It, they tried to adjust the frames for me. Uh, they tried everything, and they still didn't work for me. And I said, look, it's just not working for me. And they said, fine, here's your money back, right? No complaints, no issues, which you might have with the store, you know, if you try to do it. And I thought, hmm, these are the kind of people I'd like to do business with. Well, I got a new prescription. I, I got, got a new eye doctor, and he gave me a a prescription that was a better prescription. So what did I do? I went back to Warby Parker and they've had me as a customer ever since. If you have, if you have any issue with Warby Parker, you want to call them up and say, Hey, can you do this for me? Or, you know, kind of my lens got scratched or whatever. Somebody answers a phone like that. Their goal is to have people answer the phone within six seconds. Okay. And your problem is their problem. Okay. So for them, customer service, was a differentiation, differentiating factor. Uh, I mentioned Third Love. For them, it was a better fitting bra. Third Love's bras are actually more expensive than their main competitor by 30, 40%. You know, kind of Victoria's Secret was the one that was dominated the market. But they said, look, we're going to sell you a, a, a bra with high quality materials that's going to fit you better. And, oh, by the way, we're going to let you try it on and keep it. And if you, if you return it within 30 days, you get your money back. In other words, if it isn't, doesn't fit you better like we think it does, that we, we promise you it will, we'll give you your money back. Now, again, that builds a trust with the customer. So if you look at just about all of these companies, I think they went into it it's like, how, and this is what I think an entrepreneur said, why are you going to buy from me as opposed to all those established brands? What is it that is going to, uh, uh, you know, kind of differentiate me? and get your attention. Uh, all Birds Shoes is another really good example. I mean, think of all the different shoe brands there are, you know, kind of Nike, Reebok, uh, Puma, uh, Adidas. These are big established brands, great name recognition. All Birds had the idea that, by the way, we want to sell shoes that are made with sustainable materials, which means wool uppers and a sole that is actually made out of a sugarcane composite on, on, you know, kind of on, on the lower part of the shoe. It's not the cheapest shoe that you can buy, but that pitch appealed to a growing population, as you noted, millennials, who are much more uh, environmentally conscious. And the shoes are, you know, kind of are, are very comfortable. I have a pair. They, they come in all sorts of different colors, so they have a nice design. They're kind of fashion, you know, kind of element to them, too. But that's true of a lot of other sneakers, let's face it. Yeah. In this particular case, they had an idea that there is a market for environmentally conscious customers. And that's what we're going to do. So I think, you know, kind of, again, getting to your question, a, a, an entrepreneur needs to ask from the very start, what is my 
value proposition to the customer. What is my pitch? What is my unique idea that I'm going to get them to want to buy me from that, somebody they've never heard of? And how do I kind of, and then you have that word of mouth. Dollar Shave Club really benefited from that. And I think Warby Parker. But you need to have some kind of unique proposition because without that in a crowded marketplace, it becomes you know a commodity, and then you can't you aren't creating a brand. You just have a product, and that's that's a tough position to be in nowadays. Yeah. What was the name of the shoe brand you mentioned? Allbirds. A L L B I R D S. They're in San Francisco. I will check them out. I, I know. Yeah, I, I heard about the other brands, but not this one. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know that it. I'm not sure that they they expanded outside the U.S., but they've been quite successful uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, uh, and so successful, of course, you know, you have to be prepared that you're going to be copied if you're successful nowadays because mm -hmm. it's so easy to, to be copied. In fact, Amazon, in its own brand, started to sell a, a, a similar shoe for like half the price of what Allbirds. Allbirds was uh, like $95, $100, even higher uh, for a pair, you know, and, and Amazon came in with a, a price of $45 to $50. But I think yeah. Alberts has continued to do well because it has that, you know, kind of sensibility and that consciousness among consumers that it was able to build up. Yeah, I think that that really, you know, um, it makes sense for people to pay that extra price because they really care about the environment. I mean, if it's a real thing, I don't think it will be a problem for their audience. But, you know, time will tell us. A few things that came to my mind. So... You mentioned that the business should be able to retain customers and they should buy again. And I think one example is a Casper because they sell mattresses. And uh, recently they started selling pillows as well and other accessories. So it's quite important for mattress companies, furniture companies, maybe even luxury jewelry companies that they should sell something that is an accessory type of thing and people will buy those. Uh, or you mentioned the luggage. That's one thing. And then the other thing, uh, Zappos, I think uh, they are a prime example of great customer service. Yes, right. Um, also, their founder, uh, Tom, he wrote a book, uh, Delivering Happiness. It's highly recommended. I really like that book. And uh, I remember one example. Their customer service is very easygoing. Their people. And... Uh, Somebody asked their customer support if they know a good pizza place in uh, Denver, I think that was the example. And then they gave a name to the person, like, you can go there and try it out. And actually, I did the same test, the pizza test, um, and they replied. And also, also I think uh, the author said that uh, hundreds of people do this since the book is published. So. Right. Right, right. It's quite funny. Um, and the last thing, like, people yeah. have to have a personal connection to a company. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, you're yeah. trying to recreate that experience of walking into a store uh, and seeing a clerk who recognizes you and is nice to you, but it's a little bit harder, you know, kind of over the phone or online. But it, exactly. it's possible to do it if you have a culture that encourages that. Exactly. And the last thing is I just talked to a friend of mine. He lives here in Budapest and uh, he has, uh, I think this year they will hit around 40 million euros in revenue, a fashion brand. Right. And 
I asked him what's the, he just started a software company. So he is involved in multiple industries, but I just asked him what is the most common problem? Why startups fail both in software and e-commerce? And what he told me, they try to solve a problem that, that doesn't exist. <laughs> and I think that's something similar what you just said with different words. Like, you know, because uh, founders, they love what they do, but it includes or involves some ego as well. Like, uh, you know, they, sometimes they tend not to listen to the customers, but they are just... Uh, they are just blinded by the vision, what they really want to do. So that's a very hard field. And, you know, you have to be very cold-blooded. I don't know if that's the right word, but... To your customers and you have to be willing to say, uh, oh, guess what? You know, kind of uh, my idea wasn't the best idea, but, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, uh, they're telling me what the best idea is or what a better idea is. And so I should pivot. And, you know, many successful companies do pivot, you know, kind of either they, they tweak the product or they change the product uh, to give the customer what they want. But, but and this is actually one, one value of, of having um, a direct connection to your customers. Exactly. Close, being close to them. You're, 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 you're gathering data uh, all the time, you know, kind of even something like returns. You know, kind of if certain product is being returned, then you can say, oh, you're knowing that right away and you're able to do something about it. Um, but, you know, kind of uh, away luggage, uh, which which uh, has been been quite successful was the early startups. So they were the one that that had a lot of uh, uh, brand, you know, kind of accessory extensions, which helped them through hard times. They they uh, uh, initially they had their luggage was you know, kind of a certain size. And people said, oh, by the way, you know, kind of, you could actually make it just a little bit bigger and it would still meet the regulations and I could carry it on. And that extra inch, you know, mm -hmm. every little bit matters uh, for, for travelers. That extra inch or whatever it was could, could make a difference. And they heard this from a lot of customers early on and they were able to change the, the specs. Um, uh, so kind of, it's kind of getting to what you said, listening to the customer, adjusting your product, figuring out, you know, kind of how to, to tweak that product. You know, it, it can be how to tweak your service. It can have whatever, but, but gathering that data constantly is, is really important. Uh, uh, Warby Parker has actually been very good at that. You know, kind of, it, it, it knows when certain types of frames are, return for whatever reason? Do we have a manufacturing problem? Or is there a design issue? Um, uh, uh, it knows when people were returning frames because, um, you know, they thought they liked this frame and they had a very strong prescription with a thick lens in it. And when they got it, it didn't look right because the frame and the, and so basically they, they told people if they wanted to buy that, they learned to say, no, 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 you don't want that because that's not going to look good. You think it's going to look good on you, but it's not going to look good on you. So that does two things. It, it, it helps reduce their returns, which, of course, that's good for their business. But it also keeps customers from being unhappy by buying something they don't want to do. It, the only reason it knew that is because it's kind of taking in all this data and constantly trying to figure out the data. Yeah. Yeah, being data driven and uh, being able, you know, just being flexible based on the data and Pivoting, as you said, I think that's crucial as a business owner. Yeah. And 
You know, I, when I was younger, I watched uh, Shark Tank and we have the local versions here in Europe, every country. But actually there, you can see many companies or, or founders who, who's been uh, sticking to an idea and they shouldn't do it anymore, that business. It just doesn't work and they just don't realize it. And right. I, I think it's, you know, it's just a set, set, set examples, in my opinion. They should recognize that actually people, they want something else. The customers want something else. Right. And sometimes it's, just, it's their last chance to save the company. So I think it's just too common in the entrepreneurship world. Entrepreneurship. Yeah, very good advice. Very good advice. I have one more question to you. This is my last question. So there are, you know, different ways to compete with, with these big companies. Uh, price, value, quality, convenience, uh, maybe shipping speed. And do you think is there is one or two that uh, small startups, they should uh, favor? So maybe they don't want to have a price for with Amazon. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe they should. I don't know. What, what do you think? Price is price is the toughest exam, toughest to compete on. It's it, it's it's uh, in many ways it's a way to kind of get in front of the customer and and do very well initially, and in, you know because then you're going to get the customer's attention. But the problem with price, and and I've talked to people about this, is that. Um, Often, you know, kind of if you've got a, a, a low price, somebody else is going to try to come in with a lower price than you are, especially if you're you're talking about Amazon Marketplace. Yeah. Uh, it's just flooded in, in a, a category becomes a commodity. Um, so so be careful on price unless it is combined with other things, um, I, you know, kind of. But I think in the case of Dollar Shave Club, it was it was combined with, you know, convenience uh as well, plus very smart marketing. Kind of, I, I think that that helped and early on. Uh, Warby Parker again, it was price, but it wasn't just price. There actually are lower price online eyeglass sellers than Warby Parker, but Warby Parker, you know, kind of it's data gathering very important and it's customer service very important. I think the, the, the best thing to try to do is to come up with something, and and sometimes these are niche categories, which is fine. You know, not every company has to be, is going to be, or has to be a billion dollar brand to be successful. You know, it, 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 it can be a, a niche product that fills a need that's there. Like you said, you have to make sure that there's a real need. It's not a need that I feel that nobody else feels, but fills a need that is there. And uh, uh, that, you know, uh, uh, others maybe haven't, thought of because then you're not having to compete just on price. You have another type of unique uh, proposition. So mm -hmm. a few days ago, I was catching up with uh, an entrepreneur I had spoken to my book for my book, and his name is Jesse Pucci. Jesse uh, and a few of his friends started a social media marketing company called Ampush uh, around 2010. And they were early on in noticing how valuable Facebook could be. It was at a time when most people were on Google, you know, advertising in Google, but they saw the opportunity for Facebook. They actually worked very closely with Dollar Shave Club and helped Dollar Shave Club grow rapidly. And then they uh, uh, represented a huge number of uh, startup brands, including Hubble, uh, and also other, other brands. I think they, you know, kind of did some work for Uber at, at one point. Uh, social media marketing. Anyway, he he 
still is you know involved with the company, but he turned over management of the company to some other people. And he decided to start, you know, he wanted to start a uh, DTC brand. You know, he thought, ah, you know, kind of I I was looked at it from the place of marketing and so what, but but I don't want to do I want to find something that it has, you know, kind of what is something that maybe isn't in the marketplace that I could do? And so he thought mm-hmm. healthcare had had an opportunity. And so he um, uh, taught the doctors and said, okay, in, in a non-prescription over-the-counter drug, what, what is something that could be that, that people ask about and that you don't think that there's a particularly good product um, on the market for right now? And they said that um, uh, a lot of uh, people, especially women, but other people com- c- complain about bloat, you know, kind of, they kind of don't have great digestion, and so they'll have gas and whatever. Now, you know, this sounds like a very mundane product, but again, often the mundane products are the ones that, you know, kind of are um, uh, are the most successful. And, you know, what he did doing some research, he realized, you know, there are a lot of different dietary supplements that you can take to deal with that, but often you're taking, you know, kind of four or five pills, right, ever. And, you know, kind of just because of headache. So he formulated with the help of medical experts, one pill that kind of combines all these different things um, uh, and, you know, kind of to help deal with bloat and, and you know, kind of digestion and, and eating. So he started a company. It's called Unbloat, oddly, U-N-B-L-O-A-T. You know, you think that's kind of an odd name. He said he tested a bunch of names. That name was the one that resonated the best. It's kind of straight at you. You know, we're not going to kind of, and he launched a company a few months ago and he says it's going well. Um, uh, you know, so, you know, it, you know, it's a little bit early to tell, but again, there's an idea that, that, you know, kind of, I want to, again, figuring out where, where is something that nobody else is. And if you figure out something where nobody else is, at least, you know, kind of, again, there are other products somewhat, but not kind of exactly what it is then you have a better opportunity because you're not competing on price and, you know, kind of, you're not, you know, kind of uh, competing on convenience, other things that other people can copy. Now, somebody can come in and do this, but the hope is that you can, he can establish himself. Another thing we haven't talked about, um, uh, uh, which is, because uh, we're talking about consumer products, is, is you know, kind of companies that service companies that are in the DTC. So one of my, my, my favorite startups in the book, and I'll, uh, it is a company called Flex, F-L-E-X-E, and it's in the warehouse business. So the founder of that company uh, was talking to a friend who was an entrepreneur that sold consumer products online. And the friend said, you know, you know one problem I have is that you know, I don't know exactly, my business is kind of growing, but, you know, kind of, I, I don't know exactly how much it's going to grow. And I would like to... Um, Right now, for warehouses, if I deal with the warehouse, they want me to lock in for a, an agreement for two or three years for a certain amount of space. I don't know if I need that much space or how much space I'm going to need. It's just, you know, kind of, I don't have to pay for more than I need, but also I don't want to have too little. But there's no way to, for me to figure that out because I don't know what my sales are going to be for a year or two, in a year or two. And so a light bulb went off in this guy's head, and he said, how about if I create what is like the Airbnb of warehouse space? And what I'll do is go to warehouses. Most warehouses have some kind, sometimes they have small amounts of empty space. A little bit like, you know, houses, vacation homes sit unused for periods of time. 
And I'll create software that you can, I'll be able to match up entrepreneurs looking for space for short periods of time, three months, whatever, and they'll be able to expand or contract depending on what their needs are. Sometimes it'll be seasonal, right? Depending on what my product is. Um, they'll, they'll be able to, you know, kind of expand or contract and they'll be able to get warehouses, any space, any place around the country. Well, lo and behold, that company just raised its latest round of financing uh, this week and is valued at $1 billion. Its first round of financing, I think it was valued, this was, you know, four or five years ago, was mm -hmm. valued at, you know, kind of $40 million. So again, this was an idea that he had that he saw an opportunity and a need and to fill. And, you know, when it comes to creativity, it's hard to program creativity. What, what yeah. you do is, 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 you know, kind of, and often entrepreneurs, the, the advantage that, that entrepreneurs have is that they, they can think outside the box. They don't have a business that they have to protect. They don't have, they don't have a say, oh, I can't do that that way because it's never been done that way, which is often what big companies do. It's hard for them to think about doing things differently because it means telling the, their friend who sits in the cubicle next to them, you know what, you're, uh, you know, kind of the way we've been doing things isn't good. I'm, I, I don't want to tell him that because I want to offend him. You know, an entrepreneur can say, you know, hey, maybe there's a way to do this that the big companies haven't thought of before. And to me, that is where you know, kind of everything comes together. That's that magic moment for entrepreneurs where, where you know, kind of the sweet spot where they can find something and they got to execute. It's a lot of, you know, blood, sweat and tears and luck too. But that's how many of these companies have uh, succeeded is, you know, kind of finding that thing that, that customers want and getting there first and doing it right. Yeah, I think those are great final words for today, Lawrence, and I fully agree with you. Of course, it's about execution as well, but everything starts with an idea. Yes. And that's where entrepreneurs, they excel. And uh, without them, I think the world would be less, you know, innovative and just, I don't know, we would be in the Middle Ages, maybe. <laughs> right. It would be boring. It would be boring. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so thanks again uh, for joining the show today, Lawrence. I think it was a very insightful conversation. And thanks, thank you everyone who listened to us today or later the podcast. Stay tuned. Every week we come out with a new episode. If you like this episode, please make sure that you leave us a review and a rating on the podcasting platforms. And uh, thank you again. Stay tuned. Thank you, Daniel.